Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and this is the show where we bring you the cutting edge in science, technology, and medicine. In the program this week, is fat worse than sugar? Why the universe is expanding and how fast is it doing it? And can you really die of a broken heart, or is that just a myth? Yep, we're answering the science questions that you have been sending in. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. With me this week to answer your questions are diet and genetics guru, Giles Yo, Hi, Giles. Good evening, Chris. What's the world been saying to you lately? <laughs> There's always all kinds of pseudoscientific BS that's out there. I mean, one of my favorite ones is um, this, <laughs> this company has just launched a DNA diet test. Now, so far, so not new because I think lots of people have done it. But they have now incorporated one of these Fitbit-y type of thing, watch thing, which goes red or green. And so what happens is you get your DNA test, you have an app, as everything does, and then you go to the supermarché, and then, for example, you then scan the barcode of item X, and then your, your this watch thing pings red or green, whether or not you should eat it. They're saying then that they can tell based on your genetic profile, whether that food is fit and suitable for you to eat. That's correct. To achieve what? Because your aims might be different from one person to the next. So how would it know? No, no, exactly. I mean, do you know? Do you have a heart problem? Do you have irritable bowel syndrome? Are you type 2 diabetic? All this information, who knows? And anyway, as you're stood at the beer aisle, for example, is it really ever going to flash green? When is it ever going to flash green? I love beer, but when is it ever going to flash green at the beer aisle? Well, I don't know. There's some quite good stuff in beer, isn't there? I mean, if you drink Guinness, certainly some older people have been advised to drink Guinness. Hasn't Guinness got certain fortifying things, which if you have a fairly meagre diet and other ways can can help to pep you up a bit i don't know if this is apocryphal or not it's supposed to be quite high in iron i don't know if this is true you know how much of it is available i think that probably is true and it's high in calories for sure mm. yeah that's certainly <laughs> true but is, it's like is drinking it, soup yeah but is it not true though mm. that um more about in terms of what foods are and aren't going to agree with you and be good or bad for your health that's more to do with the microbes that live inside you than than just your genetic makeup isn't it? I don't know about more to it or not. I think certainly the microbes are going to play a very, very large role. There are going to be genes which indicate whether or not you prefer fatty food or sugary food, whether or not you want to eat more or less. That's true. But none of that is going to be predictive based on some DNA test. 
Absolutely. Sitting next to Charles is immunologist and wine expert. We always we always have you on when we talk about stories about wine, Claire. That's Claire Bryant. But you actually you are a professor of immunology. I mean, that's your day job, isn't that, it? Not that just... is my day job, Chris. Yes, <laughs> it is indeed. But you do always wheel me out as the wine expert. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, now's your chance to tell us about something that you've spotted this week. Or... Which, of course, does have something to do with wine. So, yeah, the thing that perplexes me a lot, in fact, it follows on quite nicely from what Giles has just discussed. So there's this Silicon Valley startup company which um, says that what it can do is by taking your DNA sample, it can predict what wines you would like to drink, <laughs> and it will then send you a case of very expensive Californian wines tailored oh, perfectly would, yes. <laughs> to your palate. And this company has been sustaining. It's still going after two or three years. I first saw what came to my attention. And it's particularly perplexing because, in fact, there are probably only three or four genes that have been sequenced that have anything really significantly to do with taste and certainly to do with the taste of wines. And, and given your taste in wine is very personal and is also affected by food and how you're feeling and your immune system, I have to get the immune system in there somehow, <laughs> it's remarkable. Someone did point out to me as well, because they were studying what happens when you put food, including wine, in your mouth. And because of the microbes in your mouth, some wines actually taste different to some people at different stages of the drinking process. So as you put wine in, the, the evolution of the flavour is because if you have certain populations of mouth microbes, they actually metabolise on the fly some of the things in the wine and change the taste. So as, as it evolves, you will get that hit of flavour that other people who don't have those bugs don't get. Absolutely, particularly pronounced actually if you do cheese, cheese and wine and the, the evolving taste of the cheese and the evolving taste of wine in your mouth. It, it's amazing. One wine does not taste like another. So how are this company getting away with, with flogging this? Because it just seems this DNA business has just gone too far and it's now being used as this black box, which is everyone's impressed by. It's a bit like AI. It, in, you know, 10 years ago, we were putting the letter I in front of everything. If it had I in front of something, it, it was amazing. Everyone said, oh, it's got to be impressive then. Now it seems to be the AI or something with DNA in front of it. It is bizarre, but I guess it's so hard to predict what wines you're going to like that maybe if you just don't or have the time or are not prepared to put the time in, that, that you'll believe anything that anyone tells you. And if somebody tells you, yep, your genes tell you that, and we're going to sell you the wine that matches it. Also with us, Fran Chadder-Day, who is a physicist and works on dark matter and basically how the universe works. So from really complicated things about DNA to really simple things like how the universe works. Yeah, it's a trivial, I assure you. <laughs> And what have, what have you spotted that you'd like to share with us? So one thing that's been in the news recently is reports that scientists have discovered a new fifth force. So the forces we know about are gravity, electromagnetism, the strong force which holds nuclei together, and the weak force which is relevant in some nuclear decays. But scientists studying nuclear decays of helium and beryllium very rare decays, have discovered some anomalies. This is radioactive decay you're referring yes. to, isn't it? When the atoms fall apart spontaneously. Yes. yes, that's right. Discovered some anomalies that could point to the existence of a new fifth force. And everyone's got them very excited about it. I would, as always with these kinds of stories, urge caution. Often these things are a systematic problem with the experiments. These experiments are very complicated and there's very often an explanation that isn't mm. anything to do with new physics. Well, one person said if this turns out to be true, that's straight away a Nobel Prize. That's true, yes. But I don't think we should be rewriting the textbooks just yet. So a sceptical, mm -mm, maybe, yeah. from, from, from Fran. Also with us is James Rudd. Now, we haven't had James on for a little while, but the last time you were on here, you were talking about radioactive toothpaste. You're a cardiologist, you're a heart doctor. I'm a heart doctor and a heart researcher, yes, Chris. And uh, we have been using 
uh, a scan on patients who have uh, valvular heart problems and also people who are at risk of heart attacks. And we inject them with a compound that's very similar to toothpaste. It's called sodium fluoride. And the sodium fluoride sends to home in on the patient's arteries and heart valves. We use that information to try to predict people who are going to have heart attacks and strokes and also people who are going to have valve disease in the future. We should point out there, James, that you're one of the inventors and the pioneers of this technology. And many, many other people who've worked on this around the world. Yeah, indeed. It's a massive problem. We, we know that people with narrowed heart arteries have symptoms when they get angina, pain in the chest when they exercise and things. But what we don't know is the people who are going to have a heart attack because all of a sudden one of those narrowings is, is going to cause blood to clot in the artery. And your work is actually giving us a clue as to where those hot spots might be that, that we currently had no way of spotting before. I mean, in a sense, they're a bit like dark matter because the ones that tend to go pop and cause the sudden death and heart attacks are often the ones that are very, very very small areas of the artery and not really causing a big narrowing. So actually very hard for us to spot using our traditional scans. Well, there's the panel of people we have with us this week. For everyone at home and for the team here in the studio, we've got a guess who quiz that we run through the programme. Now, the clues are going to come up across the hour. So you can take part two if you think you know what this is. Now, the first clue is it sounds like this. Don't worry, I'll give you a, a few more bits of information later on. What about this one for you, Claire, which uh, gets a lot of airtime, this sort of concept, but is it backed up by hard science? This person says, is there a connection between the immune system and emotion? This is the field of so-called psychoneuroimmunology. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting emerging area. So um, if you look at patients that have got uh, severe depression, for example, what you find is that if you look in blood samples from these patients, uh, they actually have elevated levels of inflammatory mediators. And in fact, you can look at different, different mouse models of depression and you can see that in those animals, you get the influx of immune cells into, this, into the brain. You can see increased inflammatory mediators. And there seems to be a, a gathering body of evidence to suggest that. And it kind of makes sense because stressed, stressed people will produce cortisol. Cortisol dampens the immune system. So you can see how the immune system and the CNS works in balance. And also immune cells can actually modify uh, regions of neurons called synapses, which is where neurons talk to each other. Immune cells can actually trim little areas of this off. So, so you could see how there's a complex interplay between the immune cells and the neurons, and that would then affect mood and, and mood disorders. And is that the basis of the observation that if you take, say, an elderly person caring for another elderly person who describes that as very stressful or someone who is lonely, and you find that in them they tend to respond much less well to, say, a flu vaccine? Presumably, yes. I mean, it, it all would kind of make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? That, that these kind of interplays between efficiency of vaccination and what's happening within your, your brain and your mood would potentially affect how your immune system responds. But also in the elderly, we know that they are already in a state of heightened inflammation anyway, and that could also affect how a vaccine works. So I think it's, it's a very complex interplay of different systems. And can that affect the progression of heart disease, James, and how fast arteries fur up? Because isn't inflammation part and parcel of that? It, very much so, Chris, yeah. Inflammation's long been recognised as a probably the prime player, really, all the way along from very early vascular disease, very early hardening of the arteries, all the way through to triggering heart attacks, and hence statin drugs. Probably half of the effect that they have is due to their anti-inflammatory effect on the arteries. Well, something that might be bad for your arteries is a fatty meal. And uh, this person's wondering, what's worse, fat or sugar? So who really are the bad guys, nutritionally speaking, Charles? 
Oh, I, look, I think the answer is obviously too much of either. I mean, for sure, in the 70s, people were going low fat, low fat, low fat, you know, fat is the fat is the demon. And so low fat foods come out. But the, the problem is fat tastes fabulous in food. And so when you remove it, you have to add something back in, then people then piled it in with sugar. And now people think that sugar is the new cocaine. Do they really think that, Charles, or did you just speculate? No, 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 they, they do. When people, you know, they, they show the white powder. If you look at the imagery, if you look at the imagery in certain sectors of the food industry or the food gurus, they the imagery looks as if, you know, someone is about to snort something. So, no, I'm not. It's not hyperbole. People do think it's the, it's the next cocaine. But I think something important to, to consider. Sugar is our base fuel. We need it. Um, and we need fat in order to survive. And so clearly we're eating too much of both. But what's interesting is fat per se is quite unpalatable. We don't eat butter by itself. Sugar itself is relatively unpalatable. Everything bad for you is a mix of sugar and fat. Oh, my goodness. You know, pastry, mm, chocolate. And, um, and I think that's probably part of it where a lot of the foods that we actually are eating today um, are high in sugar and fat. In nature, naturally, the closest thing we get to that mix of sugar and fat is milk. It's breast milk. So, you know, clearly as a little baby would have really enjoyed it. But out there, you know, very, very little sugar and fat mix together. Do you think that's part of it then? Do you think that's why we are so fond of that combo? It's to make sure that we get adequate nutrition when we're breastfeeding. Probably. And I think it's probably one of these things where it's a hardwired, primitive uh, drive to eat that specific mix um, um, of, of products. And if you actually literally, if you go away and think, think about it, everything or the vast majority of things that are really delicious to eat are a mix of fat and carbs. You started by saying in the 1970s, we demonized fat. Mm. Um, I've got two questions off the back of that then. One is, why did we reach the conclusion fat is bad? And do you think then that we have by demonizing fat and pushing everyone towards putting sugar into things instead of fat, we've actually triggered the present obesity situation we have. That's an interesting question. I think people, some people have argued that. Um, I think the present obesity situation is too much food in general, period. Um, it just so happens that food that are high in sugar is very uh, are very easily preserved. And so, you know, a lot of the ultra processed foods um, that are actually out there are going to be high in sugar and probably high in fat as well and salt, actually, in order to make it taste nice after they've been you know put put through the ringer. Um, so I don't think it's any one thing per se. It clearly had a driving role. The question, of course, as well as what kind of fat we're talking about, we're talking saturated fats. Okay, unsaturated fats. And so not all fats are equal. So and I think demonizing the entire load of uh, um, fat has clearly been a silly thing to do. But how did they reach that conclusion? Fat equals bad. I, mean, I think when you actually looked at it, where clearly if you actually had too much fat, and at the time when you were eating fat, you were eating lard, you were eating animal-based fats, you were eating saturated fats. You know, when you went, chips were actually all f fried in animal-based fats. Um, whereas as we began to actually go through and understand, hang on a second, then they're unsaturated fats. There's olive oil. Olive oil is actually not so bad for you. Actually, it's quite good for you. And then people began to have a more nuanced view of fat. But I think in the 70s, people probably thought that, oh, you know, when we're talking about fat, we're talking about butter. We're talking about lard. And that's probably and that that at high uh, amounts for many people, not good for your cardiovascular system. But that is what the... Atkins diet is founded on, isn't it? A high saturated fat intake, substituting those fats as calories for carbohydrates. So has that therefore translated into slimmer people with a higher risk of heart disease then? Actually, the Atkins diet is more a high protein diet than it is necessarily a high fat diet. Unless... But you can't get one without the other often, can you? No, that, 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 is, that is very true. I mean, now you're not... 
I think there are there is a very dangerous line, and there are certain um, cardiologists out there, I, I'm not not the one sitting in this room, who argue that you know we can eat as much fat as possible. Okay, that that really it's it's all about it's all about fat. Eat as much fat, and the fat is not going to be bad for you. And I think that's a dangerous line. I think there are people whose dietary related, you know, lipids and cholesterol are not sensitive to diets. And so they they can probably eat a whole stick of butter. But for the vast majority of us, I think eating too much saturated fats is not a great idea. James? Yeah, I completely agree with Giles. I think a, a balanced diet is, is the way forward. Uh, do, do you see extremes, either extremes, carbs, extreme fats, extreme protein, I don't think is is healthy. Have you had patients who subscribe to Atkins type diets in order to lose weight because they're told, oh, you're overweight, that's bad for your health. So they then substitute with one of these diets and, and end up paradoxically making themselves slimmer, but in worse health? Certainly that it works. You, I have had patients who have lost significant amounts of weight on this kind of diet. Their lipid profile, so the cholesterol in their blood, seems to change often in not a very good way. So the protective cholesterol seems to go down. The bad cholesterol, we call it the LDL, seems to go up. There are long-term dietary studies going on where we're studying the effects of things like the Mediterranean diet, the Atkins diet, and many, many other ones that are out there. But I don't think the studies have been going long enough to tell us whether it actually increases or decreases your risk of heart attack and stroke. James, thank you. Hello, sorry to butt in, Katie here from the Naked Scientists. Did you know we make other naked shows too? The fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain is very tiny and you are welcomed to that club. So if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience. Well, my face hurts now, so yeah, let's go with spicy. Don't go down into the creepy cellar yeah. and turn the light on. <laughs> exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, we've got this guess who thing going on where we give you some clues across the programme. You have to work out what this thing is. It sounds like this. I can also tell you these things live for 45 to maybe as long as 100 years. So they're quite long-lived, potentially, these things. Anyone anyone in the studio? James, friend, Claire, Giles, anyone got any ideas? Giant turtle. Giles is going giant turtle. It's not a giant turtle, but uh, do you know at home? Now, moving on, this person wants to know, and can you help them please, Fran, uh, what is a neutrino? Yeah, that's a good question. A neutrino is a very, very light particle. It's one of the particles of the standard model, which means we're very sure it exists. It's produced in radioactive decays, and around 100 trillion neutrinos pass through your body every second. But because they're so weakly interacting, they just go straight through you and you don't notice them. To detect even a handful of neutrinos, we have to build huge and very, very sensitive detectors. But they're actually, they're all around us. They come from the sun. They come from nuclear reactors. They were produced in the early universe. So they're just everywhere. So are they actually part and parcel of an atom? Or are they only produced when there's a a radioactive event, an atom decays, for example, and then the particle whizzes off? And if the latter, what's their ultimate fate then? They're only produced in a radioactive decay, as you say. When they're produced by the atom, they whiz off. And they, they don't really have an ultimate fate. They just stream through the universe forever. Does that mean the number of them is therefore theoretically permanently increasing? 
Indefinitely. Yes, but space is expanding. So more and more are being produced, but they're also being diluted by the expansion of space. But the number of neutrinos out there is going up all the time through radioactive decay, and they're not going to turn into anything else. There's nothing else they can do once they're a neutrino. They do occasionally turn into other things in a process that's like the inverse of radioactive decay. Um, I don't quite know how those two effects balance out. My guess would be that whenever a radioactive decay happens, some decays always produce a neutrino, whereas once the neutrino is there, it's, uh, it's very rare for it to ever interact with anything. So my guess would be the total number of neutrinos is always increasing, but I'd have to go and check that to tell you for sure. And if you know different, then do let us know. Thanks for that, Fran. Let's go with this one for you, James. It's uh, from Nadim, who says... Could you actually die of a broken heart? So this is familiar territory, isn't it, when people say, oh, I, you know, I died of a broken heart, very upset about something, but possible or not? It is possible, Nadine uh, and Chris, uh, but it's very rare, thankfully. Uh, there is a condition which is called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy, but often people call it broken heart syndrome. It was recognised in Japan in the early 1990s, and the word Takatsubo actually means uh, octopus pot. It's a kind of octopus trap that is, was used in ancient times in Japan. And this is a condition that can be brought on by things like uh, bereavement of a spouse or a loved one, uh, some trauma, being involved in a terrorist attack has also caused this. It's extremely rare, uh, but it does. Uh, the symptoms that the patients have seem to be very similar to heart attacks. Interestingly, people have also described it after happy events in their life, surprisingly. So uh, I've seen a patient who has won the lottery and then has developed very severe pain in the chest and come into hospital thinking they're having a heart attack. Ah, so it's it's the symptoms. But if we do blood tests, which would normally mark up someone who's having a heart attack, are they negative then? The blood tests are positive because there is damage to the heart. Right. But if we if we look at the arteries around the heart like we normally would do, where there's a blocked artery for causing a heart attack, what we find in broken heart syndrome is the arteries are completely normal. Uh, but the heart is not beating. The top part of the heart beats normally. The bottom part is blown out like this octopus uh, trap uh, that the Japanese doctors first described. So what do we think is going on then? Nobody knows for sure. Um, People think it's likely to be due to a sudden surge of adrenaline, as you would get in a very stressful situation, either positive or a negative stressful situation. And also the way that the heart is innervated by the nervous system, because the top part of the heart seems normal. It's the bottom part that sort of is almost stunned, really, and it's just not working at all and causes, as I say, symptoms of of chest pain and breathlessness. Well, how do you spell that octopus trap again? (laughs) Takatsubo. Well, thank you for teaching me something brand new. I'm going to impress everyone with that now. (laughs) The good news is, I should say, is it almost always gets better on its own. uh, So you don't need to do anything apart from just give patients some pain relief. Well, that solves that one then. Thank you, James. Over to you, Claire. And uh, we've got this one here, which is about antibiotics. And this person says, how do antibiotics kill bacteria, but they don't kill us? Yeah, well, that's that's the uh, holy grail of any form of chemotherapy, which is, you know, a drug that will kill what you don't want, but leave your healthy cells alone. So with bacteria, it's it's relatively easy because what you're aiming to do is to target something that's expressed by the bacteria, so some constituent of the bacterium that's not present in, in humans or animals. Um, bacteria, for example, the, the classic example is penicillin. Bacteria have a very thick bacterial cell wall, which is made in a very unique way by a series of enzymes. 
And penicillin will actually target the enzymes that are in the bacterial cell walls. And those enzymes aren't present in humans or mammals or animals. So therefore, you get a selective killing of the bacterium, but you leave the mammalian cells alone. Is that why we have a problem making good drugs for viruses? Because bacteria, being cells in their own right, really different from our own tissue and cells, they're quite easy, relatively speaking, to to find differences between them and us. Whereas viruses are, are part and parcel of us. When they infect us, they're growing in our own cells, using all our own equipment. It's like they come in and hijack the premises, isn't it? And indeed. Turn yeah. our factory into a virus factory instead. Oh, yeah. and therefore, much harder to find a difference. Yes, indeed. And and this is, is the big issue with viruses, except that there are some unique viral target proteins, which is then we use for example, vaccination to generate an immune response, which will target a viral unique protein, gets even more complicated with fungi and then even further complicated with cancer, of course. Thanks for that, Claire. Uh, Well, into your guts now. One for you, Giles. You can probably see where this is going. We were talking earlier about, you know, scanning things and finding out whether something's a, a red or a green for you. But this person wants to know, are all calories created equal? In other words, is a calorie a calorie or is a calorie in the context of, say, a Mars bar, load of fat and sugar, as bad as, say, a calorie in terms of a kilo of celery? Okay, so what is a calorie first? A calorie is the um, is not an SI unit. <laughs> SI units are in, uh, in in joules, but a calorie is the amount of energy it takes to raise one litre of water, one degree Celsius at sea level. So in a sense, a calorie is a unit of energy, so all calories are equal. But... Here And here's the but. If you actually take calories in food, we cannot extract every single calorie from every type of food that we eat. It's down to caloric availability. So the three examples which I use, if you have a, a, 100 calories of sugar, if you ate 100 calories of sugar, you would get 100 calories out, pretty close to that. Whereas if you ate 100 calories of sweet corn, and then you kind of peaked in the loo the next, the, the, the next day, it's clear you haven't absorbed anywhere close to 100 calories of sweet corn. But yet, if you take sweet corn, you desiccate it, you turn it into a cornmeal and then convert it into a corn tortilla, suddenly a far greater percentage of the calories are suddenly available to you. And so in that sense, where a calorie comes from actually matters, even though when you've absorbed the calorie, they're all equal. Therefore, when people talk about the glycemic index Mm. of something, Mm -hmm. what does that actually mean? And how does that translate into good diet practice? So the glycemic index is the, the speed at which the blood glucose, your blood glucose levels go up after a specific meal. And it's based on the maximum, so the 100% is sugar, because obviously it's pure glycemic. Okay, so you eat it and, and it goes up. So that's set at 100 Everything else is then based on the time after that. And so something which is going to be high in refined carbohydrates is going to have a high glycemic index. Something which is higher in things like fiber or starches will have a lower glycemic index. But the interesting thing is you can't just look at it in isolation um, because the glycemic index, the problem with that is it looks at individual foods. Whereas if you actually mix foods, say, for example, if you fry something very oddly and you introduce the, the elements of fat, Fat slows down the release of sugar. So it lowers, for potatoes, for example, a crisp will have a lower glycemic index than a boiled potato. Okay, So I think just looking at a glycemic index for health is not necessarily a good thing because no one here is going to argue that a crisp is healthier for you than a boiled potato. Now there's a pause for thought, isn't it? Thanks very much, Charles. I should say, that is food for thought. Thank you. It is. Now, James, um, so far we've we've talked about hearts a bit, and uh, we got this one emailed to us from Akil, who says, uh, how long can we keep hearts alive outside the body? And I think he's probably alluding to the fact that sometimes it's useful to do a heart transplant. Yes, it's a very good question, Chris. And I should say there are around 200 heart transplants take place in the UK every year. 
But unfortunately, over a thousand people a year die on the waiting list because they just can't get a suitable donated heart in time. Now, the current method of taking hearts out of donors is that the heart is placed into an icebox where it is stored and then the icebox is transported to the person who needs the new heart. Now, the way of doing it using the icebox means that the heart stops beating because there isn't any blood supply. So the heart itself immediately starts to deteriorate and the heart cells die. Um, It is cooled down using ice, so this can offset the deterioration to a certain extent, but still the heart needs to be implanted into the person uh, within about three to four hours. So that limits the geographical range that hearts can travel from recipient to donor. There's a new technology which has been around uh, just for a couple of years really called Heart in a Box, and that's a method of transporting donor hearts that allows them to survive up to eight hours outside the body. Um, And the way it works, again, it's a lunchbox-sized device, but this time the heart keeps beating once it's outside of the donor's body. It actually uses a a similar technique to a heart-lung machine where the donor's own blood supplies the heart muscle with oxygen and glucose and also immunosuppressant drugs, which keep it beating and keep it in the best condition before it's implanted into the patient. And that can extend the time out to around eight hours. Machines are expensive, about £150,000, so they're not used in every case. Uh, But experts believe that that will increase the number of organs available by about 50%. So many more of those people on the transplant waiting list will hopefully get something in time. I was also talking to the surgeons who do transplants of other awful organs, things Mm. like livers, for example, kidneys. Mm. And they were testing devices so that you can rest an organ and, and give it a circulation for a while before you transplant it. And they were finding when they did this, they could get some organs to recover to a stage where you would then have previously rejected them. You would then instead accept them and say, well, that's good enough to transplant. And it would appear that instead of it having had a shock of having been taken out of a donor and then have the shock of going into a new patient by resting it in in a controlled environment for a little while beforehand, it, it enables it to regenerate a bit. Yeah, I think that's very similar to the way that this is done. So organs that, that we call the marginal organs that might have been a little bit or not, not good enough to be transplanted can now become available to a wider pool of people. So, Yeah, of course, one other aspect of this is, is relevant to your field of immunology, Claire, and that's actually organ rejection, isn't it? Because one of the big challenges is finding organs that are a match. So when people talk about saying, I'm looking for a match, what, what do they actually mean by that? So um, effectively, what, you, what you're trying to do is to make sure that the organ matches the tissue and the immune environment of the patient to whom the organ is going to be donated. And so there are various ways you can do that. There are various molecules. You can look at different tissue types and to find somebody who's got an immune system and tissue that's as close to the immune system of the recipient as you possibly can. So that's why there are organ donor registers and, and so forth. So it's a central part. But what you also do is you put your patients on immunosuppressive drugs, which actually dampen down the immune system. So you're giving it the maximum chance you have a tissue type that's as closely matched between the donor and the recipient, but you also suppress the immune system so it doesn't attack the organ when it goes into the body. There must be consequences of damping down the immune system like that, though, because we have an immune system for a reason. Yeah, yeah, we, there are massive consequences. So the biggest problem is, well, one of the biggest problems is, is trying to protect your patients then from getting infection. So whereby a cold is normally something that one can fight off quite easily if you're a patient on immunosuppressive drugs, particularly early on after a transplant when you're on particularly high doses, then you're at serious risk and you need to avoid people who've got colds and various other sort of relatively harmless ailments to a greater degree because this can cause a serious, serious problem in these patients. Why can't we 
reprogram the immune system to say because it, it obviously had to learn in the first place that your heart is part of you and to regard it as friendly why have we not been able to reprogram the immune system to say james has kindly given you his heart claire this is your friend don't reject it yeah we're moving towards being able to think about these things all the time as we understand how foreign and self is seen within the body and what the molecular biology behind those processes are and we have processes such as gene transfer uh, the gene editing, the CRISPR-Cas9 systems, there are all ways in which we can potentially change organs and change cells within organs such that they are more familiar to the immune system of the person that they're going into. But we're a long way from that at the moment. Fran? Yeah, so related to that, why is it that if a woman uh, is pregnant, her body doesn't reject the baby as foreign tissue? But if the baby then grows up and donates an organ to her, that could still be rejected. What happens over that period and could we use it to help? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of changes that go on when somebody's pregnant. So they, they actually become semi-immunosuppressed oh, really? and that helps to protect the baby. And of course, mm. a baby is not necessarily going to be a good donor for a mother because mm. the baby has the father's DNA as well as the mother's DNA. So it depends how much of the mother's immune system and how much of the father's immune system and the complex recombination because the genes that are present in the father and the mother in the immune system can also mix and match. So it's it's a complicated process. It's also interesting that certain diseases of the immune system, autoimmune diseases, where the immune system attacks a tissue that it shouldn't do, become much more common after a woman has had a baby. And people have pointed out that if you go hunting through a woman's body, you can find, after she's been pregnant, examples of her baby's cells that have come out of the baby, gone around her bloodstream, and then taken up residence in certain tissues. For example, the thyroid. People have done this showing if a woman has had a boy baby, there's no way she would ever have a Y chromosome in her body. But after she's been pregnant, you can find cells with Y chromosomes in them in some of her tissues. And the suggestion is that after the baby is born and the immune system gears itself up to full strength again, then you get these autoimmune problems because all of a sudden the immune system starts to see these foreign cells sitting there in the host tissue that shouldn't be and, and then you get a reaction. Absolutely and you've also reverted the hormonal status of the person because things like progesterone are very, very, which is what's produced during pregnancy is a fantastic immunodamper and as soon as you bring oestrogen back in which soups your immune system back up then off you go and anything foreign is going to trigger a reaction. So, yeah, it is very interesting. The immune system's an amazing thing, isn't it? And it's one of those things we just don't have really much of a, an insight into really what it's, what it's really doing. We, we, we vaguely understand at a, at a sort of broad level, but we really don't understand the intricacies, do we yet? One of the exciting things now is that we're really moving much, much further into understanding what the individual cells do and the plethora of cells, and there are different subtypes of cells, which makes life very complicated. But also as we look at patients with various rare diseases where they have defined mutation in different immune genes, then we're beginning to use that information to understand what the immune system does. But there's a long way to go. Well, from simple things like the immune system, or I should say no, from complicated things like the immune system to, to you know, really simple things like what's going on at CERN, can you, uh, Fran, please help out Phil, who asks you this. Remember CERN? What are they actually up to now? Are they still doing work with the Large Hadron Collider? And didn't they have a, a weasel problem? <laughs> yeah, they did, didn't they? They did. So CERN is the home of the Large Hadron Collider, which is a machine designed to smash protons and sometimes other things together very quickly so we can see what comes off. In 2012, they discovered the Higgs boson, the particle that gives things mass, that was a very big deal. Uh, in 2016, they had a problem where a weasel got into their electrical equipment, which was quite amusing, but, but dealt with very quickly. How, how did it get in and what did it do? 
So CERN is a very, very large facility. And for that reason, it has to be in the countryside. So wild animals just are a bit of a problem. Um, so it was a, an external box of electrical stuff. It got in, it chewed through some wires. There was a short circuit. I don't think the weasel made it. <laughs> it's quite funny that you've got something that's worth three billion euros that's running with a, its own power station running yeah. it and, and a weasel got into the works and just brought the house down. Yeah, um, <laughs> they did get it up and running <laughs> fairly quickly. Have they got a weasel detector or something? How did they find <laughs> out that that's what did it? I think they probably found the body of the weasel. <laughs> Oh dear. So it didn't end well for the weasel. So what are CERN actually doing now then? You said they found the Higgs boson Mm. and they've done confirmatory experiments to be reasonably sure and then Peter Higgs was one of the co-winners of the Nobel Prize to reflect Mm. that. What are they doing now? So since then they've been searching for other new particles and haven't found any but the knowledge that there aren't new particles in the range in which they've been searching is actually quite valuable and actually rules out a lot of theories of new physics that we thought might be true. So sometimes a negative is as valuable as a positive finding. Yeah, it's obviously it's less exciting, but it does mean that physicists are starting to rethink things like what we think dark matter could be, what new particles could be out there. Um, I'd also like to mention that CERN isn't only the home of the Large Hadron Collider. That's perhaps the most famous experiment at CERN, but there's actually a lot of smaller experiments there. Um, For example, a lot of experiments looking at nuclear physics and nuclear decays, other experiments searching for dark matter. So there's a lot going on. Thank you for bringing us up to speed and telling us about the weasel. (laughs) Thanks, Fran. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Today I'm joined by a panel of experts who are answering your science questions. They are James Rudd, he's a cardiologist, heart specialist, physicist Francesca Chadder Day, immunologist and wine expert Claire Bryant, and diet and genetics expert Charles Yeo. Now if you'd like to get a question in for a show like this, then you can tweet at Naked Scientist and we'll pick it up from there. You can also email us, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Meanwhile, we also have a question for you to try at home. We have a game of Guess Who running throughout the programme. First, we heard a noise. Let's hear a reminder of that. Giles speculated that this could be some kind of giant turtle. Mark has been in touch and said, is this a walrus? No, neither are correct. We also told you they live for between 45 and 100 years, sometimes more in some cases. Pretty long-lived. And I can also tell you these animals are in the same group of animals as giraffes. Isn't that intriguing? So what could they be? More clues are on the way. Now, as I promised, we always have a quiz in these programmes to test the mettle of our panel. And we're going to divide them up into two teams. So James and Fran, you're going to be team one. And Claire and Giles, you are going to be team two. Round one is called Scientific Oops. So team one, that's James and Fran. In the 1950s, Noah McVicker and his brother, they worked at a soap company where they invented a clay-based product that was for cleaning wallpaper to get the soot stains from cigarettes and coal-fired powers off of the walls. But the invention of wipe-clean wallpaper unfortunately threatened to put pay to their invention until a nursery school teacher pointed out its potential and they turned it into... What do you think the answer is? Hmm. Mm, Well, maybe it's something like Play-Doh. 
I was going to say something like a whiteboard cleaner. Play-Doh is a good idea as well, though. Um, nursery school, 1950s. Yeah, probably play. I, I reckon Play-Doh. Okay, should we go, go Play-Doh? Play-Doh. It, it is very well done. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was indeed Play-Doh. Unfortunately, vinyl wallpaper threatens their industry, so they had to think outside the box. And they took the soap out, put some colour in. The secret to the recipe remains intact. No one knows how they make it or how they mm. give it that lovely smell. Because I, I mm. guarantee if I say That's Play-Doh, so everyone lovely. can smell it. You can all, yeah. you're all thinking Definitely. of it. Yep. Okay, well done. Well done to oh, James dear. and Fran. One okay. point. Oh, okay, uh, Claire and Giles, it's your turn. Which of these inventions was not an accident? Laser pointers, microwave ovens, or safety glass? What do you think? Oh, what do you think? I think it's going to be something like the safety glass. I bet you that was that was done entirely. It was not by accident. Not yeah. by Which accident. Which one of these inventions was not an accident? Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of... I'm going to go with think, safety glass. Yeah, safety glass. Yeah, we're going with safety glass. No, actually, it's the laser pointer. Oh, oh interesting. Right. Microwaves turned up when, uh, you might know the, the, the fairly famous story actually, the scientist noticed um, he was working on radar and uh, he had a microwave generator, a magnetron on the desk in front of him. He had a chocolate bar in his pocket and when he went to eat his chocolate bar it turned all gooey and realised that there was something coming out of this magnetron which he was using for his radar experiments which was very was well absorbed. That was microwaving him. That was microwaving him but more importantly microwaving and melting the chocolate bar so the microwave was directly informed accidentally by that experiment. Cool. Uh, the other one was the safety glass, which you chose. Actually, the safety glass was a scientific accident. Someone dropped a whole beaker that they were working on, which was full of cellulose nitrate. When the beaker hit the ground, it didn't smash. It cracked a bit, but it remained intact. And that's because the inside of the glass had got coated with whatever the cellulose nitrate was doing, and then they realised the concept of making safety glasses, which could absorb impacts and not break. The laser pointer wasn't the accident. Oh. Right, so there's no point for you there, I'm afraid, so far. Round two. Now, this is called pound for pound. This round, OK, so back to James and Fran. Pound for pound, printer ink is the most expensive liquid in the world. What do you think, true or false? Mm, what about, like, molten gold or something, though? Does it, yeah, does it have to be a liquid at room temperature? Oh, it's not a trick question in that respect, no. It's, okay. it's, a, it's a liquid. So oh, some, something that's or liquid. something like liquid helium. Yeah, I have bought some printing recently and it is frightening you back expensive. A bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe there's something in the pound for pound. Um, yeah, my instinct is that it's false, but I'm not 100% sure. Like, maybe there's just not much printing in the thing that you buy, so yeah. it ends up being... What so do you think? It's only a few mils, I think, per cartridge. So mm. I'd, I'd say yes, it's such a ridiculous question, it must be true. OK, let's just say true. Wow, no, actually, you, you never, you're not going to get this. It, it, yes, and Giles is shaking. He's going, yes, yes, in with the chance. But um, the answer is actually the most expensive liquid is scorpion venom. The death stalker scorpion is the most dangerous scorpion on the planet. Its venom is also the most expensive liquid on the earth. It's £6 million per litre. A hundred quid will get you a droplet smaller than the grain of sugar. Wow. Why okay. do people want to buy it? Ah, well, you see, a lot of these things, Claire will probably tell you, because a lot of these things are neuroactive, because mm. they're very fast-acting, they very, very precisely target very specific elements of the nervous system, so scientists are really interested in them as potential leads for drugs and mm. other therapeutics and also ways that they, to unpick how the nervous system works. So they're, they're actually very valuable commodities. Um, also, other venoms from snakes and, and so on as well are, are in demand. And, of course, you need to develop antivenoms to protect you mm. if you get bitten by one yeah, of that, these that's things. that's true. Uh, printer ink, since, James, you said you're a bit out of pocket recently, you felt, <laughs> you felt the sting of that since we're talking about uh, scorpions. Printer ink, uh, a competitive 
of £3,000 a litre. So still <laughs> exorbitantly expensive. Wow. I'm right, so in the wrong business, we're, we're level pegging now, almost, OK? So it's, um, you, if, you, if you get this right, you can, you can equalise. Are you ready, Giles and, and Claire? True or false, antimatter is the most expensive substance on Earth to make. Can, what do you think, Giles? I've got no idea. I've got no idea. Can we even make antimatter? Isn't that an, an Avengers, um, um, you, you know, <laughs> a storyline? You, you know, in terms of that, the physicist's not helping here. You know, she's, she's not very exactly. sporting, is she? Do you notice how we divided the teams yeah. up and quite, quite carefully apportioned the questions? Well, I'm okay. Assuming they can make antimatter, it probably only you will get some nanoparticle. So I would say let's go with true. It's got to be worth a shot. You're going to go true? Yes. All right, you're going true? Yes. And true is... So you can make antimatter. Yeah, 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 yes. I didn't know that. If you if you if you go to well, Fran, you you can probably tell us. I mean, if you go to to Adam Brooks Hospital mm. and have a PET scan, a positron emission tomography oh. scan, you actually are using the effects of antimatter yeah. in order to scan someone. That's, that's correct. Would you yeah. would you concur? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, according to various sources, because it's so difficult to make, the price tag is a hefty eighteen billion pounds per gram. But wow. yep, we can make antimatter. Level pegging, one all. Back to. Fran and James. Round three, a question of numbers. Okay, here we go. This will test whether you were paying attention in the head and neck lectures when you're at medical school, James. How many teeth form a complete set of milk teeth in a child? Is it 20, 28 or 30? What do you think, Fran and James? I just do not know. Um, 20 feels too low. I, I feel like I remember having more than 20 teeth. <laughs> you have now. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it is 20. OK, well, you should but know, so we'll go with your answer. Medical school is a long time ago. Yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, 20 is the number of milk teeth. It, it did uh, seem surprising because it's five mm. in each quadrant. So five uh, on the right upper, five on the right lower and, and vice versa. Adults have, do you know how many 32. adults have? Yep, adults have 32, assuming the wisdom teeth come through. So mm. your eights are your wisdom teeth. So 32 teeth in total in an adult. So in the lead so far, let's see if you can equalise over to Giles and Claire. You've got to stay in this to, to, to stay in the game. What's the chance of having twins in a pregnancy? Any twins, okay? Either identical or non-identical. And this is a natural pregnancy. It's not assisted conception. Is it 1 in 75, 1 in 150, or 1 in 300? Wow. This would be, have to be a guess. I, it, for some reason, I remember the number 1 in 150, but it could be because I was imagining things. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's relatively rare, isn't it? It is relatively rare. Yeah. So... One in 150 or one in 300? Oh, goodness. But you've actually remembered a number, so maybe we should just go with that. And, and, and if we lose? Uh, I'll let you off, Charles. Okay. It's all right. It's not the end of the world if we lose So what are you choosing? One in 150. You're going one in 150. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry. It's actually one in 75. Oh, wow. Chance. Yeah, it's 1.33%. Yeah. And it's quite interesting. Uh, you can remember this because twins, non-identical twins, one in 75 triplets, one in 75, squared times. And identical twins, much rarer still, 0.3% of pregnancies. So you didn't get the point. So I think this week's winners, therefore, are James and Fran. Give them a round of applause. You, are, you, you win a prize beyond price. That's this week's Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week Award. So very well done to you. They, they look a bit miserable that you beat them. <laughs> they do. They're very sad. <laughs> very subdued. Very subdued. Now, Giles, are you a stressy eater? Do you tend to... to to pack in the calories when you get worried about something or, or do you go the other way? No, I do. I bowl of noodles. I don't want to be backing a stereotype here, but yeah, bowl of noodles for me. Because, this is what Amalia says. Mm. Why do some people stress eat? 
So why do they? Why why do people do that? Because I'm one of them as well. You know, it's it's a diversion. I'm going to go and uh, get a bowl of noodles or get a bowl of pasta and start to chomping it down when, when actually it'd be much better to just get on with the thing I'm having avoidance behavior and not doing. <laughs> why, know, why do we eat? You know, in short, I don't think we actually fully know. I mean, and, and this is one of the, the mysteries, right? Because leaving aside tiger stress, which is obviously everyone responds to tiger stress in the same way. We kind of run like hell. Um, otherwise, we'd be dead. But um, work stress, everyday stress, we behave in diametrically opposite ways where some people don't eat and some people eat. And it's the same hormone. It's, it's cortisol. And, and yet we respond to it completely and absolutely differently. So that's so, the stress hormone, cortisol. That is, that is, that is the stress you hormone. You make that, that when you're worried about things. Exactly, exactly. And, and it comes up. I mean, there are other things that happen as well, but that primarily is it. And we respond in completely different ways. While we don't know for sure, I mean, look, I think being stressed is very unpleasant, as we all know, and we want to remove that unpleasantness. And so I just think that for some people, including me and you, the eating, you know, eating feels nice. And that is a strategy to actually make us feel nice. James? Does adrenaline play any kind of role at all? Because you think of adrenaline as the fight and fright, and you wouldn't necessarily sit down for a nice meal if you're being chased by a tiger. But are we talking about chronic stress raising your cortisol, or how does that work? Yeah, I'm thinking about chronic stress raising your cortisol, because I think the, the flight or fight, you get a big surge of adrenaline. And what happens there is you lose all appetite because you're, you're kind of running and you know, sugar just floods into the entire system. Claire? But some of us are completely reverse and do not eat at all when we're stressed. So what do you reckon the uh, biology behind that is? I don't think we actually know for sure, but I just get the feeling that it's going to be down to your strategy for removing the unpleasantness of being stressed. I mean, for some people, it's bungee jumping. For other people, it might be alcohol. Maybe it's wine, you know. <laughs> and um, and and But I think that probably is it. It's what is your strategy for actually feeling less unpleasant? For me, it happens to be a bowl of noodles, and I think that's true for a lot of people in the world food. Thank you very much, Charles. Yeah, me too. James, this one for you. Someone here said, um, why do we use pig hearts for things? Because it's very often mentioned in the field of cardiology with replacement valves and so on, or even considering pig hearts as replacements for the human organ that's become diseased. We could chop in a pig heart instead of a human heart. Why are we so focused on pigs? Well, it's really all down to the fact that pig hearts are very similar to the size of human hearts. And uh, let's talk about heart valves for a little bit. There are four heart valves in everybody's heart, and the job is to make sure that the blood flows the right way through the heart. And the valves can become diseased and damaged, and they can either be too narrowed down so the blood doesn't flow properly, or they can become leaky so the blood flows back uh, where it shouldn't be. And so what happens is we can use pig heart valves, which are specially treated. It takes about four weeks to actually prepare a pig heart valve to go into a patient. They're so they would actually take the, the native valve from the pig heart? Indeed. Native oh. valve comes out of the pig heart. It's treated with glutaraldehyde, which completely sterilizes the valve, removes some of the immunological triggers that might cause people to reject it. And it's then placed in, in a kind of a strut, which is suitable for sewing into a patient. And do they, do they substitute like for like? So the valve that you were talking about, the aortic valve earlier, that mm. you're interested in with, with that furring up and becoming narrowed in patients, and you can spot that with your radioactive toothpaste. Would it be a pig aortic valve in place of a human valve? Would it be a pig mitral valve in place of a human mitral valve? Would, would you go anatomically like for like? Yes, you do. And uh, as I say, it really boils down to the fact that pigs and humans have roughly the same size hearts. Charles? And where are we with actually genetically modifying pigs or, or the heart so that we actually remove the immunological problems? So in humans, we're nowhere near, but there have been some experiments done uh, where 
pigs have been modified and then their hearts have been transplanted into other species, which I think chimpanzees, the chimpanzees have stayed alive for about a year. So I think we're on the road to that. There are clearly perhaps ethical concerns that we need to think about before we take that last jump of xenotransplantation. But pig valves have certainly served as well for the last 40 years. I spoke to Professor George Church from Harvard, who's a pioneer of a lot of this genomic technology, earlier this year. And one of the things that he did was to work out where all of these viruses that loiter in the genome of all animals, actually, but where they all are in pigs. Because one worry is when you take a heart from a pig and put it into a person, because they'd be immunosuppressed, as we were discussing earlier, if any of these viruses reawaken, they would then be growing in the face of a, of a new body without any kind of immune response to tackle them. And that could have all kinds of consequences. So he's gone through and found where in the genome these things are lurking, and they've removed them. And this is obviously a step towards making these things safer. But as you say, we're not quite there yet with the whole question of how to stop the immune system still regarding this as pig, not human. Yeah, indeed. And and with the heart valves, as I say, we actually blast the valve tissue itself with very strong detergent under high pressure and high temperature yeah. to kill any kind of immune signal. Does it regrow new cells, human cells of the recipient over that tissue then over time? So it's like road resurfacing, but then you grow a layer of your own cells. So over time, you don't see pig tissue, you see human tissue. Exactly. Yeah, it takes about three or four months to do that completely. So patients need to be on anticoagulant drugs for the first few months. But afterwards, they can stop that once the valve has been endothelialized, we call it. Thank you for that, James. Now, I better put people out of their misery over this guess who, because, you know, I told you these things make this noise. I'll, I'll play it for you one more time. And um, Giles thought perhaps this was some kind of turtle. Mark thought it was perhaps a walrus. Neither of those were right. These animals can also be 16 metres long. They can weigh up to 100 metric tonnes, and they're in the same family as giraffes. So with all that information, can you anyone speculate what they might be? Some sort of whale. Yeah, actually, this, what you were just listening to, Claire, you're quite right, was a humpback whale. So, well done, you got there in the end, and well done to anyone who, who got that at home. Claire, this person says, how does cancer get past our immune systems, and um, does it? Well, most of the time, no, actually, because your cells are growing and proliferating all the time. What happens when the cell proliferates is it can have a mutation. It tends to be a small number of cells, and the immune system will whip them out. So what actually happens um, when you get cancer that is a problem is that your cells uh, that are proliferating and that are mutated, um, they really outgrow the rate at which the immune system can take them out. The other thing that cancer cells do is they can express, or under normal circumstances, cells will express eat-me signals, and then T-cells or macrophages will come along and chew them up. Sometimes cancer cells can actually switch off the eat-me signal, and at that point the cell becomes invisible to the immune system and the immune cells just pass it by. Is therefore, when you get a cancer, is that effectively a failure of the immune response then? It's escaped and it's managed to form a tumour? Yeah, yeah. It, it, that is exactly one of the uh, mechanisms by which it happens. And of course, there are now a whole host of immune therapies which are working super efficiently to actually really get rid completely of these cancers. So it's a very exciting area and the, the data coming through on these uh, immune therapies is, is really, really interesting and exciting. The rationale being if the immune system can get rid of cancer in the first place, all we have to do is reprogram it to do that once. Exactly I say right. all we've got to do, but basically redeploy the immune system and overcome whatever's held it back to Absolutely. get rid of a cancer. Yeah, that's exactly the theory and it does seem to be working really well. That's encouraging, isn't it? Now, we've got this one for you, Fran, which is from D. How fast is the universe expanding? We've sort of assumed with that question that we know the universe is expanding. So how do we know that, Fran? And 
Also, how do we measure how fast it's going? When we look at distant galaxies, we see that they're all moving away from us. And the further away the galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. And we can imagine what's going on here by thinking about a balloon that I've put lots of dots on. As this is radio, you're going to have to do some visualisation. But a balloon with a lot of dots on and I'm blowing it up. And all of the dots get further and further away from each other as I do that because the balloon is expanding. And if I imagine I'm sitting on one dot, the further away the dots are, the faster it looks like they're moving away from me. So that's what's going on. And one measure of how fast the universe is expanding is how much faster the further away galaxies are moving than the closer to me galaxies. This is called the Hubble constant, and its value is about 70 kilometres per second per megaparsec. So a megaparsec is about a million light years. So that means that something a million light years away from the Earth is moving away from us at about 70 kilometres per second. Something 100 million light years away from the Earth is moving away from us at about 7,000 kilometres per second. So that's the best measure of how fast the universe is expanding. And it's a very important parameter in cosmology. So why should something more distant be moving away from us more rapidly? So it's because all of the space between us and the galaxy is kind of increasing in size. So the more space there is, the more increasing size there is. And hence, the further you look or the furthest away you look, the greater the increment. Yes. OK. But it hasn't always been the same number, has it? Because if we look at the way that the universe is now, the only way we can explain the universe we have is if when it was very, very young, very, very small, it grew faster than a teenager and expanded <laughs> very, very quickly and then it slowed down a bit. That's and now right. it appears to be speeding up again. So how do we explain that? Yeah, so you're talking about initially there's a period of inflation and we need inflation to explain a lot of observations about the universe, notably why it's so homogenous. And no one really knows what drove inflation. It's one of the mysteries in physics. But we think there was probably some particle as yet undiscovered that drove this inflation. Now, it seems like the rate of expansion is accelerating again, not to the same extent as it was during inflation, but a bit. And we think this is due to something called dark energy, which would be either kind of a constant in Einstein's equations or perhaps a new particle or field that permeates the universe that is driving this accelerated expansion. Um, as you can tell from the way I'm talking about it, we don't even fully understand what questions we should be asking. Isn't, the, isn't the weird thing about this, though, that um, space seems to make dark energy mm. when it exists? And the more space you make, the more dark energy you make. So it seems to be almost like it's coming from nowhere. That's right. So with a normal substance like matter... As space expands, matter gets less dense. You know, if I've got stuff in a box and I increase the size of a box, it gets more dilute. But with dark energy, that's not the case. The density remains the same. So it just grows and grows as space grows. A bit like the national debt, really. <laughs> <laughs> Fran, thanks very much. We're going to have to leave it there because we have, unfortunately, run out of time. Thank you very much, James Rudd, Fran Chadder, Day, Claire Bryant and Giles Yeo. And to you at home for listening. Adam Murphy put the programme together. Next week, we're going to find out all about the science of avalanches, so don't miss it. Now, just before we go, 
Don't forget, this is your chance to win a fabulous star chart. You get to choose the date when you would like a beautiful star chart showing the stars in the configuration that they were in the night sky on the date that you've selected. You can get this printed up and framed by the folks at underluckystars.com. We're going to give away three of these wonderful star charts. And in order to get the chance to be one of the three who wins, all you have to do is be a donor to the Naked Scientist in November or December. To do that, you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate and we will include those people who are regular monthly donors in that list. And if you could become a regular monthly donor, we would be extremely grateful. We do need to meet our running costs here at The Naked Scientist and your donations really help us to keep the show on the road. So please do support us if you can. Christmas is coming. We do have a target to reach and if we can make it, it would be a wonderful Christmas present. It's nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.